Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for September 2013. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen stopped boat, hyphen satirist, <laughs> Lee Zachariah. <laughs> and with me, as always, is... Hi there, I am writer, hyphen director, hyphen prospective Norm Smith medalist, Paul Anthony Nelson. And uh, with us today is our very special guest. Hello, I'm Tegan. I'm excited by the hyphens. I'm Tegan. I'm comedian, hyphen writer, hyphen actress, hyphen lover of shiny things. Love it. Yeah. A shiny in the Whedon sense or shiny in the shiny sense? Just the shiny in the shiny sense, I think. I realised a little while ago I kept on buying things that were shiny. So I'm like a living magpie. <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, you were mentioning beforehand, the first one we're going to talk about today, Blue Jasmine, you didn't get to see it because... Because I've been making this short film, um, which will hopefully be aired on ABC next year. And myself and this beautiful director, Joel, we've made this little film. It's just this little romance. It's called Dinner for Three, and it's very Woody Allen-inspired. So it was actually Woody that kept me away from Woody Allen because we've just been so busy on that short film, and it's very, very lovely. And I do get worried about telling lots and lots of people how Woody-inspired it is because then they'll go into it and go, it's not as good. And I'll be like, I know, because it's not Woody. (laughs) Always that danger. Yeah. Well, damn, damn you, Woody, Woody Allen's <laughs> legacy. I mean, yeah. the, good, the good legacy. The yeah. very good legacy. Do you think that the legacy has continued being good? I, I think it has. I um, Actually, I want, I want to, because I've got an idea of what Paul thinks of this film, so I want, I want to ask him first. Sure. Paul, Blue Jasmine. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> look, I'm one, of those, I'm one of those people. I don't believe there's ever been a Woody Allen slump. Good. I think, I think mm. there's a, a, I think he has blips. I, ha- I think he has a film or two that aren't great, but there's no slump per se. And I tend to like the ones that people don't like as much and not like as much the ones that people love. For instance, I'm not a big match point guy and I'm a huge whatever works guy. Okay. Things like that. Um, this one though, I'm plugged right into the zeitgeist. I thought this, I kind of think the blue Jasmine's his best film since deconstructing Harry. Wow. Yeah. And I'm a huge, huge fan of, like, of stuff in between. But this is the best, most complete, most affecting film he's made in a decade and a half. Um, Kate Blanchett and, and Sally Hawkins need Oscar nominations now. It's a great sort of post-global uh, financial crisis take on um, something like Streetcar Named Desire and really stays with you. It's, it's funny at times, but nev- it's not a laugh-out-loud hilarious film. It is definitely a drama with, you know, wisecracks and okay. with some wry observations. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I was kind of worried going in, and I shouldn't have been, but it kind of looked like one of those um, Hollywood things of, oh, she used to be rich, but here's what the working class can sh- teach her about life and love. Mm. And, like, it's not that at all, because, like, everyone's got the same problems regardless of them, mm. even though hers are more, more exacerbated. Um, but, yeah, I agree. I think this is an extraordinary film, and it's like... I mean, you, you mentioned Whatever Works, and one of the things I love about that film is it's not a film about love, it's a film about being content, which is something that nobody talks about. It's mm. just like it's such a weird concept to make a movie about. And this is, in part, a film about settling and about not not constantly trying to reach some ideal that doesn't exist, but looking at what you have and going, you know what, this actually makes me happy, so I'm going to settle with this, and saying this is actually a positive trait. And I, I love that he takes these concepts that seems like they should be the antithesis of what a, what a film's message should be, and he makes that a positive. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, see, I, yeah I, 
I felt that the settling was possibly in their detriment. And um, I mean, Kate Blanchett is just alarmingly good in yeah. this film. God, she's beautiful. She is, mm, and just lovely, <laughs> and so fits into the Woody Allen world. Like, it's like, how was he not casted like ten years ago? Like, she's just. Yeah. You could see her playing the roles that he used to get Judy Davis to play mm, twenty years right, ago, yeah. and just cycle her through those. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought this was this was fantastic, and this is good. I'm so excited mm. now. <laughs> Much- ah, speaking of being so excited, <laughs> hey! there we go. <laughs> White House down. Oh, no, no sorry. No, <laughs> I'm so excited. Peltrell and the Dovars. I'm so excited. The film that has has probably got worse reviews than anything in his career. I would say, which kind of I don't know. Look, I don't know what people are doing it's not a like yeah okay look it's not by any stretch a great film let's just put that out there but there's stuff he made early on that i've and and things like flower of my secret and law of desire that aren't quite as good as this i like i don't know it's the way people have been savaging it it's like it committed some kind of crime against children like i don't see what the like, I mean, it's when you watch an El Motivar film, you have to travel to Planet El Motivar, yeah, which is the rules of the polite, politically correct world do not apply. So you'll have some very sexually inappropriate things occurring. <laughs> you'll have, you know, a woman, you know, basically rapes a sleeping man on an airplane on an airplane, and that's played for laughs. This is kind of the world El Motivar mm. inhabits. So it surprises me that even our of our fans have been looking at this and tut-tutting it. It just seems odd. Look, it's a very silly, very camp confection of an Almodovar comedy that's really pro- not really going to cross over, I wouldn't have thought. Mm. it. I would have thought it would appeal to his fans. Um, it's... So that's the thing. It works in the context of his career. I agree it only works if you've seen all of his films, but it also shouldn't. Like, it should, you shouldn't have to go, oh my god, what's she do? Oh, wait, Almodova. There we go. <laughs> it's him. Crazy old Pedro. <laughs> but, see, that's the thing, I don't know. See, I, once I step into Planet Almodova, I've instantly switched over. So, I, I guess I'm not having that conscious thought at the time. I'm laughing along because I'm, I've made the mm. switch. I will say... Look, sounds like an advertisement for a radio station. Make the switch. <laughs> make the switch. Planet Almodova. 109.9. Um, I, I will... Look, I, I will admit that I enjoyed it, even though when I step back and put on my objective hat, whatever yeah. the hell that means, I, I can see this awful, awful film that everyone hates. <laughs> and, I, and I can, yeah. But I, I did actually have fun, I think. Same. I, 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 I almost think I shouldn't have. But I, part of it is that I like Pedro's anything-goes attitude to sex, and I like it because it's consistent. Yeah. And I kind of admire that even if it, uh, a question mark often appears oh. above my head and distracts the person sitting in the row behind. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there is, like, John Waters is the only other filmmaker who can get away with this sort of thing. Mm. Like, nobody else could. Yep. Anybody else tries this film, you'd, you'd laugh it out of the theatre. Now, Sarah Polly is uh, three films into her directing career. She's been an actor since she was very young. She was in Gilliam's um, uh, Baron yeah, um, she was in Go. She's I, I love her as an on-screen presence. I love her eyes. I, I kind of miss her on screen. Um, but if she's going to keep making films this good, she's welcome to stay behind the camera. I, I love Away From Her. I love Take This Waltz. Stories We Tell is her best film. Yeah. 
I think it, it's it's the documentary to beat this year. Do you know about it, T? No, I was just thinking. I haven't even heard about this one. What is this? Well, it's basically the setup is sounds so self indulgent. She's yep. making a documentary about her family, okay, and the secrets in her family, and she interviews her brothers and sisters, and. It's not only a story that's worth telling and unfolds in the most interesting way possible, but it it becomes about the process of telling stories. It's not just telling a story. Mm. It looks at how we tell stories and becomes this meta-layered thing that isn't that doesn't feel false. It's not like she's constructing all these false layers. They just sort of come in naturally. It's 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 an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, you see, I. I that sounds fascinating to me. Uh, it's similar with comedy. I love it when comedians tell stories. Mm. I really love it when they tell their stories mm. and when they're, they're willing to look at their own life and how they choose to say that. Mm. That sounds fascinating to me that she's actually gone to her own family. Yeah. Wow. You should see the film. Yeah, I'm going it's, to. There's <laughs> so many layers. Um, yeah, and continually spring surprises it's poignant you'll you know you'll wind up taking sides at some point it's just it's so involving and um and as you say it becomes an examination of why we tell stories and why we choose the stories that we do tell and and how we frame our own narratives and um yeah it's i absolutely agree i think it's absolutely brilliant Mm. did you get the impression all the family was on board Gradually. Yeah, even though one of them will appear on camera and say, I, I think one of them says, why are you making a documentary about this? So I think <laughs> yeah. that happens at one point, like, but they're still willing to do it. That's amazing. What's well, because to her parents were actors yep. and um, they seem quite, not an extroverted family, but, but a family very comfortable on camera. And, mm. yep. Yeah. This is one of the best films of the year. It's mm. an absolute must see. Now, I made a promise a few months ago. <laughs> Because I told Paul I was calling After Earth Oblivion. Because it, it was like Oblivion, but was with Will Smith. Yeah. And I told him at the time I had one for White House Down. And I dubbed White House Down Paralympus Has Fallen. Because not only <laughs> is it a carbon copy of Olympus Has Fallen, but, well, not a carbon copy, it just happened to come out second. I think they both were developed at the same time. Mm-hmm. But. Like the Paralympics, it comes after the first event where people are now fatigued by watching it, even though the second one is significantly better. Right. Don't get me wrong. Wow, I th- see, I thought you were going to go the easy joke. No, no, no. <laughs> not at all. No, I prefer the Paralympics. So this, this, Excellent. Fit, this fits my metaphor yeah, sure. perfectly. Uh, White House Down is terrible. Um, okay. Yeah, but it's going to be that good kind of terrible, isn't it? Well, I think I, it's going to be the yeah. Independence Day terrible. Well, it's, I, I think it's more terrible than that, but um, it's certainly a watchable terrible as opposed to Olympus, which was an unwatchable terrible. Mm. Uh, there are degrees here. It, it kind of feels like the Stepford presidency, where you you honestly feel like people are only alive for the period of time that the film takes place. <laughs> so you have people go. No, Yes, let's go to the White House. After all, I am the president, and you are my senior advisor. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys would have established that at some point. You don't need to do it on the screen. Uh, but um, I know that like having a single wannabe secret agent uh, saving the world with his feisty yeah, he's a dad. Daughter, I think yeah, he is, yeah. I, like I know that's not the most believable of premises, but I would have liked. A little more suspension of disbelief. <laughs> just a little more. Just a tiny bit. But there is one thing this film could have done 
to make it a five stars. Like one thing. <laughs> one thing. It would have been stars. five stars. I don't know how much you know about the, the film's cast list. Okay. It's a pretty the, good cast list. It is. Like they're, they've, they've certainly you know, stacked it with some, some good actors. And one of them is one of my favorite actors, uh, character actor Michael Murphy, who plays the vice president. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of, one of my favorite roles of his was when he appeared in the Robert Altman, Gary Trudeau miniseries, Tanner 88. And then in Tanner on Tanner, where he plays an aspiring politician um, uh, or, or a politician who's running for president. If it had been that character, <laughs> if he had been playing Tanner, five stars from me. Vice President So Tanner. close, Emmerich. So close. I think the thing that either makes or breaks these films is whether they've got that sense of humour about themselves, whether they know and are very aware of what they're doing. Mm. And when they take themselves too seriously, that's yeah. when I'm like, well, I'm out, because you actually think this is a movie. Well, <laughs> you'll be very happy, because at one point, the uh, tour guide at the White House says, and this is the White House, as you'll remember from Independence Day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. That is a line of dialogue that made it to the final It's chance. the best movie ever. <laughs> Five stars. Five stars. So, a couple of months ago, uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas did a talk uh, with the uh, University of Southern California about various film-related matters, and one comment that caused a lot of column inches in the media was that uh, Spielberg um, was quizzed about the constant state of inflated blockbusters that seems to be growing further and further out of control these days. And he, um, with films routinely costing upwards of $200 million to make, and then on top of that, another $150 million to market. And he was uh, quoted as saying that the system, as it stands, is no longer sustainable. We are going to get to a summer where, we, and the US summer is when most of these mm-hmm. big movies are released. We are going, and in Spielberg's eyes, we're going to get to a summer where six or seven of these behemoths will crash at once and bring studios down and that is going to have to f- and and going to force a massive rethink of the way films uh, event films are are um paid for and sold and and everything else and just a real rethink of the industry what do you guys think about this do you do you think the 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 current because we've had we've, we have come out of a summer where we've had about seven or eight 200 million dollar blockbusters we've had the lone ranger which has been a 215 million dollar western mm. that flopped and there, there's been a few other of these as well and they haven't quite crashed studios yet and there's been enough big hits to kind of assuage the damage at this point mm. and we've got a you know emerging international markets like china and russia that are more now grossing more um, going to American movies more than ever before that are, that are starting to kind of save. Do you guys agree with, with, with Spielberg's proposition? I don't want to say that Steven Spielberg is catching up to me. <laughs> <laughs> but is. he basically said something that I've been thinking for a while, which is that if you look at the way everything's going, cinema attendance is down. The smaller movies are struggling in a way they haven't before. We're about to get 4K televisions, cinema quality, internet is about to get faster. I think that uh, certainly for, uh, I don't know, long, long term, but certainly in the ne- in the future we're going to see uh, smaller films being released VOD. You're going to select, it's going to be a release date, you select it on your TV and you buy it for five bucks and you watch it. And if you've got a 4K TV? Well, there is yeah. this... Um 
this comment that I'm hearing a lot now about films, and I've even started using it, which is you've got the movies that you have to see at the cinema. Yeah. Those that are big and the beautiful. You know, we're discussing Gatsby before. That was one of the ones where people are like, oh, you've got to see that at the cinema. You've got to see that at the cinema. And then there are those other ones where it's like, no, you can watch that at home. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing now is there is this belief that unless it is a massive visual effects film, which aren't always the best films, mm-hmm. it's better off to be watched at home. Yeah. And that's going to change things, absolutely. And it also begin, begs asking, well, what, what is a film? Like, why do we go? Like, what, what is the reason we walk into the dark and watch this thing on a screen with other people? And is, it, is the film losing something if you don't go to a cinema and see it? You know, if, you, if your idea of making a film is to get something out there, to, to put a message out there and create something, does it matter, and I don't know, you know if this is right or wrong, but does it matter where people are seeing that mm. as long as they're seeing it? Yeah. If the, you create something where people can just go, bang, it's on their computer and they're watching it, is that less of a film because they didn't go out to Village or Hoyts? There's a sense of community, I think, to, go, to, to film going that certainly I felt strongly about before smartphones became a thing. Um, <laughs> but I, I, actually, I'll tell you, I, um, I, I've worked in, in film in various forms. I, I, I made films, I studied them, I did all these things, and nothing demystified cinema to me as much as working in a cinema. Mm. Seeing how films were constructed didn't ruin their magic. Seeing a cinema with its house lights on as I cleaned up popcorn in the aisles, that did it. And I realised that it's because there are these magical places that you go to where where movie where movies happen. I don't want to get a little you know too haughty about it, but I think that's a huge part of it. And I th- I, it's a shame that we're going to lose that, but I think we are because I, I actually think that um, if all this comes to pass, the big winners are going to be um, film festivals. I think people are going to crave that experience. Film festival attendance is going to go up. The only problem is where are these film festivals going to happen? Because if there's this big downturn in cinema, the cinemas aren't going to be able to keep existing. And as we saw with the Melbourne Film Festival, the big greater union uh, where it takes place is about to be demolished. Mm. So it's sort of... There's sort of a, a, a chicken and egg situation here going on, except it's who dies first, the chicken or the egg, without being too, too morbid. <laughs> yeah, and not to sound like a mum or anything like mm. that, because uh, this is a very mum comment, but the cinema tickets are just so expensive these days. <laughs> and, and it really is the thing when you're sitting there going, because oh, it costs me now over $20 if I want to go mm. see a film, and when I don't have cash coming in, that's a lot of money. Mm. And that's another problem as well as it's, once again, if it's these big visual things and it's going to be such an experience, then you go, okay, I can see that being worth it. If it is something that you can wait a couple of months and then own that film, you do start weighing it up in your head. Well, this is something George Lucas posited, that he sees a future where I, your Iron Man 3s, your Gatsby's are $25, $30 a ticket, mm. almost like a Broadway show and maybe you get a program or something, but your drama-driven films like your Blue Jasmines or, as he cited, Lincoln... Um, will be 6 or $7. Right. And so depending on the spectacle of the film, there'll be a price structure associated with and that. And that's the thing. If there is a movie that is 6 or $7, you go see that and you don't think about that cash. That's a couple of mm. coffees. Like, you yep. can walk in. Yeah. But you do start weighing things up when they get to over $20, I think. And that's, you know, it's terrible, but that's how it is. Absolutely. These are the, these are the sums the, that you do. But the big studios, like, generally control everything. You know, it's a... And would they let that pricing happen? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I know a little bit about the business. I don't mm. know enough to know if they could say to a cinema, no, you can't actually mm. stop. It's yeah. almost got to be exhibitor-driven, doesn't it? And then, and then, like, 
our exhibitor is going to say, no, screw you, we make more money charging 20 to 15 20 dollars now for the one blockbuster and we won't worry because you know what stopped vod mm. happening uh well initially was they were going to the trial it in one city and i don't know where it was you know chicago or san francisco or somewhere but uh tower heist the eddie murphy ben stiller film was going to be released in cinemas and on vod on the same day and cinemas refused to run it Oh, wow. Because of yeah. that. And Even so they, though the VOD cost was ludicrous. Um, yeah, well, that, that, that's... It was like true. $70, 70 it, bucks to watch it in your... It was a little insane. Really? I, yeah. I think they were trying to set a precedent lest it becomes, you know... <laughs> then again, like, but the film, though, worth it. <laughs> but but Soderbergh yeah, did it with Bubble. Yeah. Uh, with, with, uh, Soderbergh's Bubble was released on DVD, VOD, and in cinemas on the same day. But that was low, low, low end, and he could afford to be experimental. Absolutely. Mm. But I, I think that pricing structure is interesting, and I think that actually may be what uh, keeps... I think the VOD thing will happen, mm. but it'll be in tandem. You'll have uh, films being released in the homes, and you'll have cinemas that keep going for people who still want to go to the cinema and you may have that pricing structure. I do notice one thing though looking at the box offices so far for this year for 2013 mm. Iron Man is up the top which is that big visual thing where you go oh yeah you got to go see it but at number two and number four is our Despicable Me 2 and Monsters University which is what the families are taking their kids out to see mm. so that is one thing as well it is still an outing yep. and families are still going it's a treat to go to the cinema which yep. is what it was when i was a kid yep. but otherwise when you look around that it is man of steel it's fast furious 6 it's these big mm. blockbuster films and you're right that is that is the way that people are going mm. we're getting to a two tier model now yeah it's yeah. it's effects driven blockbusters mm. which have all the advertising and all the screens yep. and it's big family, you know, huge budget uh, family animations. Absolutely. But it's even another conversation that I, I'm one of these people, I have trouble with 3D. I don't always see it very well. It can yep. be very blurry for me. Mm -hmm. uh, Man of Steel was something where I really experienced <laughs> that. I saw it um, three times, once in, no, twice in 3D, once not. And I enjoyed the not 3D experience as well. Mm -hmm. So now I'm now also selecting cinemas based on special effects and yep. how they're showing the film, which is, you know, that's also going to make big differences there as well. Which is interesting because the 3D push is, I think, a way to keep cinema viable mm. uh, in the way that widescreen and, and, and colour and sound and, you know, all of these advances. Yep. Yeah, designed. non-piratable. And not, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That's, that's why they don't. Yeah, that's why they like the three D. Mm. Even though audiences like yourself, Tegan, are beginning to reject three D. Yeah, so, it's. it's um, I couldn't realize why I kept on coming out of these films with a headache, and then I went, "Oh, I can't see them." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it's. I don't. I think there's kind of merit to like. Yeah, I think VOD will happen, but I think it's it. It's slow to catch on at the moment, but I think it's going to be with the independent films that that is going to be a thing mm. um we still haven't really addressed the monetary side of these films costing more and more money mm. like it's this thing now it's like it, it seems like the average hollywood blockbuster the entry level price is 150 million dollar budget and then they spend just as much on the marketing mm. and if se six or seven of those do crash at one time which we've seen from this summer is entirely possible mm. Is the, the growing international market enough to save it? Because if you look at the US box office this year, the, the blockbusters have not been as big as they have in previous years. Mm. Like Iron Man's the only one, the only 400 million hit 
um, in the US and the only billion dollar hit globally. Most of the big US films this year have grossed sort of high 200s in the US. And there's a, there's, a, there's a sense that the US are a bit fatigued and they're getting their, maybe getting their films in other ways. Yeah. Attendance it's a lot of factors. Very clearly down. Yeah. And whereas you've got international markets booming and, and this sense that now Hollywood are thinking more about these other countries, these other non-English speaking well, I, countries. I wrote an article about this for Encore about how they're actually pandering to other countries in a big way to the extent that I, if you saw Iron Man 3 in China, you would have seen scenes that didn't exist anywhere else wow. in which Iron Man teamed up with the Chinese doctors and really? saved the lives of whatever or his life got saved or something and they just awkwardly inserted it and have yeah. no effect on the narrative. Yeah. And, but they're being that cynical yeah, about it, and they've got even Disney releases for the last few years. Um, are sometimes subbing one of the voices of a character with a locally voiced mm -hmm. character. Yeah, like right. Jessica Morais did a voice for somebody in car in pl Disney's planes this year. Yeah, um, um, DreamWorks does it as well. Yeah, uh, with e even as far back as Shark Tale, they had Tracy Grimshaw uh, stepping in for Katie Couric in the local version. So yeah, yeah this weird kind of pandering. But it's like, again, it's like, well, how long before that market taps itself out? Like, we almost, I almost feel like we're back in the 80s in a little way when action, they were still making these huge budget Schwarzenegger and Stallone action films, particularly with Stallone, whose films stopped being hits in America in the mid-80s, mm. but were these massive hits overseas, and that propelled his career for another 10 years. I also think, I mean, this is something that I felt a little bit, and I could get shut down for this terribly, because <laughs> I know I've had this with friends. A lot of the big blockbusters now are all the superhero films. Yep. It's, it's the Marvel and all that sort of stuff. And I've, I've, I feel like they're still very good films, but the advertising, you're seeing nothing new. It's the same yep. looking posters. It's the same ads. It's the same explosions. Oh, there's no <laughs> shortage of Tumblr vlogs out there yeah, <laughs> and that compare posters and how 20 posters for 20 different films all look like the same. You time. know, and it's the new Thor will be out soon, and I'm just so fatigued. I don't, yeah. I don't care. You give a shit. And, it's, and that's the thing is this is where these studios are expecting to get their money, and if somebody like me who does actually care about that world is now going, eh, then imagine what the general public are feeling. Yeah. You know? I think, yeah, I think there's going to be... Ha I think they're trying to throw everything at the wall right now, but there is going to be have to be some massive shift if that industry is going to be at all sustainable. And God knows what will happen to, uh, like, the Australian film industry. Yeah. yeah. The romantic person in me and the person... I was having a very similar discussion about newspapers the other day. They're dying and they're going to go and it's going to be soon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we may still get a weekend paper, but... It's, it's just not sustainable yep. anymore. Yep. And that breaks my heart because I love newspapers so much. Mm. And that does concern me. But with regards to film, I don't think I lost anything by not seeing Midnight in Paris at the cinemas. Yeah. That film still hit me as hard as it did and I still watch it as, you know, as much as I possibly can. <laughs> there are... It will be a change, but I don't know if it's going to be a devastating change. I think it will just be a change. So, Tegan, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. James Cameron. Ah, uh, oh, this man. <laughs> he had a massive impact on my childhood, actually. Because there was three films that my parents used to watch a lot that we weren't allowed to. They were too too bad for us, too scary and all that sort of stuff. It was yeah. True Lies, it was Terminator, and it was Aliens. Wow. And I used to... And every now and again, I'd see them watching these films, and it would be trying to sneak a peek. And finally, when I did get to watch them, they weren't let down, so they were amazing. <laughs> Aliens is my favourite film. 
I just adore that film so much. But I just have so much time for Terminator mm. and even True Lies as well. It's a funny movie. It really is. It's a really funny movie. So it's just across all the levels there. I mean, Bill Paxton in Aliens is just hilarious. So he finds this comedy and the, the action is just so good. I love mm. him. I love him so much. Do, do, you, have a, do you have a preference uh, with Aliens in particular, a director's cut or original cut? Um, I, to be honest, I don't mind either. I like the directors just cause it's more and I get more yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I'm going to go directors on that one mm-hmm. just cause the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. What I love is that within the first 15 seconds of seeing these characters, you know who they are Yeah. and they're just such good characters. And all I need is somebody to say, check those corners late at night and I'll freak out. <laughs> 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 Even the behind the scenes of that film though is also one of my favorite behind the scenes. There's this beautiful moment. Well, you've got Sigourney Weaver chatting about how she's really against guns and she really struggled with aliens because of the gun usage and she she's a big protester in the US about no guns, all that sort of stuff. And she goes on about this, I reckon it's for a good couple of minutes, about how she really struggled with the film because of the guns. And then it jump cuts to Bill Paxton going, I love the guns. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So well, yeah, yeah, he got off to to an auspicious start because we think of you know yeah he has, he's got a very selective filmography, and uh, and I think that's really reflected in Piranha Two: The Spawning. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me oh. correct you there. Oh, Piranha Part Two. Part oh, spawning. okay. Because it's like a book, isn't it? Isn't it? Were we just going to see so many chapters? <laughs> Piranha Part Five. Like, like, like it has nothing to do with the first film whatsoever. This is what's hilarious about the whole Part Two thing. It's like, no, no, it's no part of any story. It's a, <laughs> it's a cash grab spin-off by a shonky Italian producer. Yeah, right. An Italian producer who needed contractually an American name to direct the film. The original director, some guy named Miller Drake, who has never been heard from since, quit the film and a ambitious young man who was hired as the special effects director a young man named James Cameron was promoted to the directorial seat and after delivering rushes one day which the Italian producer did not enjoy was summarily fired from the film or fired as director but sort of kept around on set at one point Cameron tried to break into the editing room and start re-editing more footage <gasps> wow um, so he didn't direct it. no he directed very little of the film yeah. he is indeed yeah because they needed the american name contractually so wow. they kept the name um, the so when I was going through that film trying to look for traces of James Cameron, saying, oh, maybe that... Maybe but the weird bit... thing is, there are. It's yeah. aquatic. Yep. That has a female, uh, uh, like a female lead, lead who's, yep. you know, getting it done. It's got Lance Henriksen. Yeah. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's the whole thing about science um, conflicting with, you know, like, a, so, you know, possibly scientific hubris endangering humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, there actually are some links, which is disappointing, because it's not really his film. Mm. And he doesn't consider it his film. And okay. for years didn't actually, whenever it was asked for a filmography or whenever it was represented, would never add it mm. to, to his filmography. Um, did you guys see short film, Xenogenesis? Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually, he made it when he was in college in 1978, three years before. He started off um, making models and doing special effects and art direction mm. for Roger Corman films and things like that. That was his in into the industry. And it was due to this short, which looks great and it's kind of like you watch this student short that he made for twenty thousand dollars with another guy randall frakes but you watch this short and you're like this looks like any kind of 70s maybe italian Mm. kind of sci-fi movie and yet it's it's got a bit of tron 
it's sort of uh, anticipating Terminator and Aliens a little bit, but it also feels like Empire Strikes Back years before George and Company got to it. Yeah, mm. it's very like it's got Star Wars written all over it. Mm. Like he's clear, like it's kind of part of his folklore now that he saw Star Wars and went, "That's what I want to do." Oh yeah, I didn't know that. That's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and because he, you know, he's studied physics for a while and then went into English and drove a truck and all this sort of stuff and was a bit sort of trying to find his direction and then saw Star Wars and that's what made him. He just became obsessed with how do I do that. How do yeah. I make the special effects? How do I tell these stories I have made like this? And Xenogenesis is an absolute first step in that direction. And it's funny because you, you look at the... Uh, the, the um, it's essentially a 12-minute chapter um, about a guy, a guy in the future looking around for, for life or whatever and, and finds this huge cleaning robot that then tries to kill him. And the cleaning robot looks almost identical to the robot that we first see in the very first scene of um, The Terminator. Yeah. Um, rolling over skulls and what have you. So it's interesting little callback. But yeah, it's 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 a very fitting start for his career. And then, of course, was the Piranha 2 imbroglio. But it, it's uh, now knowing more about Piranha 2, I'm all the more impressed that his first proper film is The Terminator in 84. If that's his first actual feature film. Yeah. Then, and yeah. it is a good feature film. It is. It's, it's a great film. It is. It's. It's just. I mean, it's very much that. Okay, now I'm in. Like, I wanted. I'm not doing this again. And you kind of got that sense too, because he met producer Gail Ann Hurd. Um, they teamed up to to um, to to make Terminator on the deal that he sold the script to her for a dollar on the condition that he gets to direct. Right. So there was very much this. No, no, no. I've done the. I'm. You know. I've done the hired gun thing, and mm. I was. Fucked around royally on that. Yep. I want control from now on. And you see that from Terminator onwards. It's fantastic. <laughs> Another thing, though, that I, I know that this, we're probably going to differ on, given what you said before, I love Titanic. I think <laughs> Titanic's great. I think I remember going in to see that film when I was very, very young and loving it, and I watched it just, what was it, about two months ago, going, oh, I'm a bit older now, I might mm. not love it as much. And I still do. I think it's a fantastic film. Yeah, I th yeah see, I think there are fantastic elements of it. I mean... We'll get there, but I just I found that because see I grew up very heavily on the eighty four to ninety four Cameron mm -hmm. on the Terminator, Aliens, Abyss, T two, and True Lies. Yeah, and when I was twenty two, I saw Titanic and thought it was his best film. Right. So what changed? And I was that? a giant fan, and I and then I think there was a bit of zeitgeisty backlash at the time, and I don't know. I come to it now, and I just find it so heavy-handed and so sentimental. I still like it. I still think it's a terrific film. Yeah. And, and you know, a physical marvel, mm. but I still find it a bit... It, it's a departure from, like, there's still so much Cameron in there, but it's such a departure from, as you say, his 84 to 94 works. Yep. I'm, I'm going to challenge this notion later, but I'm going to say it now anyway. Uh, boys movies. Uh, where he, where it looks like James Cameron is a director who's making ah oh, screw, screw romance. I'm just going to make you know mm. science fiction horror, and he, that's. But you say screw romance, and it's the relationships in those films that also really get me into them. It's the, mm. it's you know, it's in Terminator that the, those beautiful moments in Aliens right at the end with Michael Bean and Sigourney, like they're good, they're good, they're moments. And Sigourney and Newt. 
I mean, the poster for that film was her holding a kid. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? That doesn't that doesn't scream boys film no, to no, me. But in the... I, I think he's I, I think he sneaks all this through. Like, yeah, uh, he he makes it looks like he's making the these schlocky you know uh, adrenaline films. Physically, mm-hmm. they but, look like blockbuster films that are all about the hardware. Yeah, they're like, all about t- ships t- and guns and robots and things. T- and yeah, it yeah. looks like a B movie on the outside, and you get in, and there are real science fiction ideas about fate and destiny and self control and and all. Of these things like yeah. really deep stuff yeah all of these films have strong central females in the role even and the then, villains the, sh- the yes. ship is mother the the, the head alien is mm. is this mother is, is laying eggs yeah. like it's yes yeah, such a female and, and he never makes a big deal about it but yeah and when, when i look looking at aliens uh from 86 it's not like yes he inherited sigourney weaver's character but he put her in a group with marines and like I think three of the Marines are women, yeah. and which I can't think of another film that would would have been doing that at and, that and time. Doesn't really make beforehand. a big deal about it. It's yeah, just, it's just there. Yeah, and 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 those them, yeah those Marine characters Vasquez is, is, is awesome. She's yes. just amazing. But even then, that moment with her and oh no, I've blanked out on his name. The captain when they're just about to die together at the end. Yeah. you know that's it. He creates a Gorman. moment. Gorman, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you. Um, it, he creates that moment, and it's it's. Yeah, I think it's really, he sneaks all that stuff in. And the mm. reason no one sees him as, I guess, uh, a feminist who loves romance is that he hid it all under, <laughs> under well, guns and explosions. Yeah. I feel like Cameron at his heart is kind of an idealist. Mm. Because it's all about, throughout his films, they've always got these very kind of, rom- almost like, and I, I don't know if he's always good at writing romance, but he's... He's always got these romances at the heart. Like, The Abyss is about, you know, has a broken marriage at the corner of it, at at the centre of it. Um, And Mm. compared to, like, his care for the environment and stuff as well and and coming up with these solutions to, you know, fix the BP oil spill and things like Mm. that, like, he's clearly... He's, um, you know, I've, I've read that he's just become a vegan in the last year. Like, he's yeah. very much about wanting to save the world. And, mm. and then with these romances and now the way his career's gone with Avatar and Titanic, he's very, I think there is a huge sloppy idealist at the centre of all this. I think there's also really good intentions as well. Mm. You look at Titanic, and I remember when that film came out, there were, the documentaries were huge and and all that sort of stuff, and the attention to detail he put into honouring this story, things like the boy on deck spinning the top and the jacket left over the rails, these were inspired from photos from the Titanic. These He, he linked it in with so many things that happened. And I think in other situations, you know, Pearl Harbour is one that jumps to mind, where there was just no regard or care for the actual situation itself and the people involved. I think he goes into things with with very good intentions. And, the you know, Titanic, I think, was another one of those situations. You really wanted to capture it all. And And honestly... And it's yeah. also that the special effects, like everyone goes on about the Titanic special effects, that's not why it made a zillion dollars. It was because there's a romance at the heart of it and that he always cares about character. Yeah. And, but it's also the fact that he does the, the Jurassic Park thing. You know, the, the, when, when they see the brontosaurs in Jurassic Park, it's still an amazing moment because it, uh, there's awe in there. It's always informed by character. And so in the abyss, when... There are these incredible, groundbreaking special effects. They're amazing because the characters are marvelling at them. Mm. They've just discovered We're something. seeing them through the characters' eyes. Exactly. Yeah. Because we've already gotten to like and, and know the characters. And he always does that. Yeah. He- and it introduces something that Cameron would continue throughout his career is the whole notion of, of releasing director's cuts. Mm. 
I happen to think the aliens one. I, I like your point about it means I get more, so I like it, mm. which I think is is totally correct. But I think as a film, I think the theatrical version works better. The Abyss in 1989, on the other hand, I feel like is the one film that I make the George Lucas case for, which is yeah, right. I think they should burn the theatrical print and only the special editions. I've stand. only seen the special edition because the special edition is a marvel. The special edition is a great film. The theatrical version has loose ends that don't connect. Yeah. It, has, it seems to wander off themes. The aliens at the end seem to be a deus ex machina. It, like, it all just doesn't hang together, which is why it was, a, um, it, it was a notoriously difficult shoot, one of the most difficult ever. He, you know, it was shot in an abandoned power plant um, with these huge tanks filled with water, and the actors were kept in freezing cold water temperatures for weeks on end. There's a point mm. near the end of the shoot where the stars smashed up their kind of trailer and green room area because they just need to get some release out. Wow. It was that kind of film. No, um, the Abyss was one of the first Cameron film that would set the tone for everything to come since in terms of budgets. Yep. It was one of the most expensive films ever made at the time and every Cameron film from T2 onwards was the most expensive film made at its time. And The Abyss was met with audience indifference and critical scorn, and it's all because of this theatrical cut. And when the special edition was released three years later, even a lot of critics that gave it negative reviews in the cinemas flipped. Yeah, right. Because it's made so much sense, and and it's almost like a TV series. There's so much going on, and so many characters, and so many threads. And it was one of those ones I, I really grew up with as well, and I just I really, really dig it. Can I say, I've seen these films a lot, but it was only when watching them back-to-back that I realised the, basically, Aliens and Terminator 2 have almost the same approach to the sequel, in that this uh, woman at the centre of the story, and no one believes her, Mm. and it's to their detriment. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I I think one of the the genius things of, of, of Terminator 2 is the way it flips it on its head and the fact that Arnold is now a good guy is isn't just a oh he's a star he's a bigger star now let's let's make him the the hero it's actually in terms of what it means to Sarah Connor's character so interesting yeah and We're having to trust this thing yeah mm, yeah and I, I think one of the things that he understands that so many other filmmakers don't because uh, Terminator Three Terminator Four don't have Sarah Connor in them. The star isn't the Terminator. It's not Arnold's Terminator. He understood that it's Sarah Connor is the star yeah. and she's the emotional anchor of these films. And that's more important than all of these amazing special effects with Mercury, you know, connecting yeah. the ground. He's freaking great. <laughs> oh, he's, oh, great. he's amazing. Yeah. And I think that that Terminator 2, I think that's one of my favourite films of his, actually. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm just thinking yeah. about what I've said. It's pretty funny. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it's... I think, yeah, you're right. It's a really... that He does. He sees that female character and he understands what he can do with that. And it's, mm. it's amazing. Yeah. And and definitely puts her in that position of, of, of tra- you know, trusting him and then watching her son, the thing she values most in the world, this thing that's the thing, the, the boogeyman, the thing that she's mm. spent the last seven years in an insane asylum about. Having grown up watching uh, True Lies over and over again. Such a good film. So funny. <laughs> So good, the film that... Uh, Jamie Lee's amazing. Well, that's she's the great. thing. I watched it a million times, and it was only this time looking at it, I was like, oh, she's the star. It's, a, it's The film is all about Jamie Lee Curtis. Yep. She's the one who has the arc. So I found True Lies the one Cameron film where I found the sexual politics a little bit troubling. Mm. I don't know. It just sort of... 
had me a bit like I think the word bitch is mentioned more than any film I can think of in any. Mm. Yeah. And whereas in the other films, it's like it made sense because of the industries that these women were, you know, these arenas these women were found themselves mm. in. It was always like depicted, not endorsed. And I don't know if this True Lies was depicting or endorsing that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And that, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis's character isn't as, as strong as those women in those other films. And I think he shows that they, he, she has it in her, the, the way that Sarah Connor went from being this waitress who was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I have no idea what to do in this, to the greatest action hero. Yeah. And, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver by the second film is that as well. Yeah, that moment with Jamie Lee where she smashes the glass in the interrogation. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff. That, yeah, I think she's pretty... See, yeah. I really yeah. like that scene. Yeah, yeah. I thought that scene was really well played mm. and didn't apportion the blame to her, which I thought was really great as yeah. well. So I say a little betrayal. And, but it's, um, I thought it might have something to do with the fact that it was a project that didn't originate with Cameron necessarily. It was a remake of a French film called La Totale. Mm. Um, at that Schwarzenegger had seen and brought it to Cameron and said, hey, I think we should remake this. <laughs> um, by the way, is there, there's not a director ever who's used, Cameron, uh, who's used Schwarzenegger better. Right? No. He's the king. No. No. He, he's almost the only one who knows how to use him. Like, I think there's been other times out, so like Predator and, but I mean, you know, and, um, and a couple of other things, Conan. But I think that Schwarzenegger consistent, his three Cameron films are his three best performances. Yep. It's like he knows he's in on the he's in on the joke. He knows what you know. He's not just playing Arnold. But he's when he softens characters. him as well, when he tries to soften this big hulk of a human, that's when I think Arnold really, really works as well. In Terminator Two, mm. having to soften to this machine, it was it's amazing. And yeah, in True Lies as well, having this dad, and there are moments where they really tone him down. Him as well, like that moment where he talks to the horse. Yeah, funny, you know, just <laughs> really funny. And not in that. Awkward Ivan Reitman, you know, running no. away. Like, and the, like anyone that makes Arnold suave too. Like in that first yeah. scene doing the tango with Tia Carrera, he yeah. is genuinely James fucking Bond in that yeah, scene. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, how did you make this big lumbering Austrian that? Yeah. Just, yeah, I think he, yeah, he uses Arnold fan. Like, that's a relationship. I, I wish they'd make another film together at some point just to put a cap in that and just show us what Arnold can do in the right in the hands. Well, we've we had we had mentioned Titanic a, a lot, but yeah. I've now seen that film twice, and I watched it for this podcast, Only and I watched twice. it yes, and I'm so glad I didn't watch it in the intervening years because um, I really liked it when I first saw it, and then I started to think I didn't like it, and its reputation got out of control, and it yeah. became this whole other thing, and now that's died down. I was able to watch it with fresh eyes, and I, I was actually able to appreciate it on its own mer- merits. And I'm, I, I think it's brilliant. I think, you know, the, the Romeo and Juliet comparison is easy. But the fact that he understands why that story is endured and why he needed that to anchor this film, so to speak, anchor, um, is, uh, is why it works. I mean, you have such a sense of the danger. It's, I, I honestly think, it, like, for all its, its moments of corniness, it, it does work. I, th- I oh, also absolutely. think the casting in that film is so important. Mm-hmm. I believe and still believe to this day that Kate and Leonardo really loved each other. Mm. I remember reading behind the stuff stuff for them that they just instantly bonded. The very first scene that she had to film with him was the, the portrait scene, the, the, the naked oh. scene. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, the, which is really full on. Yeah. Um, 
and you did hear stuff that behind the behind the scenes they were just inseparable and loved each other and are really good friends and are still very good friends to this day. And I think that's one of the differences as well as I completely believed that they saw each other and fell in love. Mm. And it's yeah, I, I just think it's a lovely, lovely love story. Look, I think it's a great tribute to old Hollywood. It feels mm. like such an old Hollywood movie mm-hmm. um, in terms of its its scale and its kind of emotional. It's non-cynicism. It's kind of emotional yep. openness that does sometimes result in some corny writing and some, you know, broad performances here and there. But it's still – and some sentimentality. I find the saddest bit is not – for me, it's always the nearer my God to the bit where the band, the band start playing mm. that tune and uh, we go to the captain – Mm. And the for me, it's the, the couple at the bed. Oh. I I am still hysterical when I see the couple <laughs> yes. on the bed because they choose to die together. Yes. Oh, oh, that's so, just that, it. Kill, and that even now that I'm just thinking about I know. that. Yeah. In in what what five seconds of footage he breaks everybody's hearts. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah, best shot of the film. Yeah, yeah. It's just that amazing. sequence is oh. the center point of the yeah, yeah, centerpiece yeah. of the film for me. Yeah. Um, as great as Kate and Leo are, and I think. With Titanic too, I think you're absolutely right. It's the it's the event spectacle of the thing and the craft, but also the relationship and these two stars that we just hook on to because mm. they're so charismatic. Yeah. Which is something I wish he'd learned with his next film. Well, hang on, because his... Well, his next feature film. Well, <laughs> let's let, let's take a break because he does... Uh, it's a, several years before he makes another film. And for a while there, we were thinking he was kind of gun-shy. For a while there, there was how do you follow up Titanic? Yeah, how do you follow up the biggest film of all time? But there's also the fact that he has this real pioneering spirit, and he's genuinely interested in exploration and using the clout and the money he has to to you know forge new frontiers. I guess Uh, he made the uh, the documentary uh, Ghosts of the Abyss, looking at the Titanic wreck. He made um, Aliens of the Deep. Which is about exploring deep sea life mm-hmm. and and this whole kind of ecosystem. But I also I also love the life. way that his naming conventions for his documentaries always recall his films. I'm, I'm expecting yeah. him to make a an underwater documentary called Terminators of the Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I genuinely. <laughs> we're one step away from that. It's of the Avatar. You notice he makes TNA features as well. What? Oh, T- right. <laughs> TNA features. They're all, they all start with A and T. It's wow. like Terminator, Aliens, Abyss. Terminator 2, Titanic, Avatar. That's not what I thought you meant True when you lies. said TNA. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I want to call it bait and switch, friend. It's, but yeah, they yeah. are great. I mean, they're really interesting docos, and especially the second one. Yeah, I yeah. find that Ghosts of the Abyss, I find that unless you're a Termin- unless you're a Titanic aficionado, it does feel like it's three hours long. <laughs> Adding Bill Paxton to the mix, mix, though, is such a great touch. Genius! Yeah. He, is so, <laughs> he is so not having a, gro- a good time in that submersible. I do wish he'd be playing his character from uh, True Lies. <laughs> no, wait a minute. Oh. <laughs> or, or even Yeah, aliens. yeah, yeah. Actually, no, from True Lies. That'd be great, just sleezing it up down there. Look at a small dick, it's pathetic. God, I love Bill Paxton. He's <laughs> <laughs> so good. But yeah, I really liked um, Aliens from the Deep in particular. I thought mm. it was beautiful to look at and, and the great perspective of focusing on all of the crew, mm. who as well, I love that many of them were, were women, mm. more than half, I think. And it, it was a great look at that undersea life. But I like the way that everything hooks into everything with Cameron in terms of his work and his passions. Mm. And often he's had five marriages and... What? He loves women. Oh, he's always blasting women. women in his marriages. Yeah, and, and usually women that he's worked with. Mm. He was married to Gail Ann Hurd. He was married to Linda Hamilton. Mm. He was married to Catherine Bigelow. 
Um, and he's currently married to Susie Amos, mm. who was in Titanic. And uh, who one, was she in Titanic? She was uh, the, the granddaughter. Old, the granddaughter. Um, I w- oh, great! The redhead. And, and yep. my, my friends and I were actually obsessed with her in in high school because she was the only female role in The Usual Suspects. And yes. because we love the usual suspects, we therefore thought she was the greatest actress in the world. <laughs> so when she turned up on Titanic, I was like, yeah, Susie Yay! <laughs> but he's often, often these, uh, one of the reasons cited for these marriages going, um, going belly up was that he was too obsessed with his work. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and this is a kind of this, this perfectionism and drive. And it's funny that he does have this pioneer spirit, is genuinely excited about exploring and the future of the planet, but also developing R&D for his films because mm-hmm. he developed underwater cameras at this time and underwater digital cameras mm. and 3D, the Fusion 3D camera system right. is something him and his brother, Mike, developed and created. And all of this time where we thought he was gun-shy and just going off on documentaries because he couldn't follow Titanic, he's actually developing the R&D to get Avatar made. Yes, Avatar. Now, Paul and I actually uh, argued about this uh, very briefly early on in, in the run of Hyphenates um, with me loving the film and Paul being wrong. So uh, <laughs> what, what, what did you think of it? It was, it's a fine film. I just, I had no desire to watch it again. Mm. And, um, and that was, that was the thing when it comes to Cameron, that's the one film that kind of, I just go, yeah, I get it. I get why this is a big deal, but I, I just don't need to watch this film again. Yeah. And, um, and that's, I, once again, because it was another one of those films with his where people were just hating it or they were loving it. Mm. I didn't, I just kind of went, okay, that's what that was. I didn't dislike mm. it, but yeah. I can see if it's not your cup of tea, like not, not a person's cup of tea, how you can turn against it. Because again, like Titanic, it's very sincere and earnest and very kind mm-hmm. of, you know, and it's, it's, you know, blue cartoon people going, I see you to each other. And yeah. it's so schmaltzy. But I, I have to say that, I don't love or hate this film. Mm. I'm I'm the same place I was when I first saw it. And I've, look, I have been hard on it over the years. It's an easy film to gang bash. Oh, it was. It became the butt of many jokes for yeah. a while. Yeah. yeah. And watching it again, I have to say, I just find it. I just find it straight up the middle. I like you, T. I find it fine. I mean, okay. It's it's you know it's like I just find that. It needs. I understand why the story needs to be broad stroke and simple because you're dealing with such an intricate world and amazing technology. It it needed a charismatic lead. It needed a Harrison Ford mm. to guide you effortlessly through that yep. story. It's a, a, a cat and, and you know, or a George Clooney, or you know what I mean. But someone with that kind of charisma, yeah. Who you could just sort of, a Matt Damon, who you could just sort of look at and go, "I like you." And that will yeah. be if I'm going to pick at anything. Is I yeah, I'm not a Sam fan yeah. um, at all. And I would love to get behind this guy, but I just he doesn't do it for me. He just doesn't pop. You know? He doesn't well, pop. Like he's fine. He does what he needs to do. But what he like... does do, what Karen does do with this film is use the Titanic template. I think he was very aware that what made that film work was this, this romance between people from different worlds. Mm-hmm. And so he does go out of his way to make Worthington's character a scrappy working class guy. He was like, science, aliens, this is crazy to me. Don't worry, audience, I'm, I'm just like you. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then have this, this, this uh, woman who represents this other world. And again, at the ending featuring the destruction of something huge and important and tragic. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. with, with, you know, the, the, the tree, whatever it was uh, Yeah, home the, tree. The, the, yeah, home tree. tree. And, and, and tree I, I think that's one of the reasons uh, it worked, because you've got to give the guy credit for having a romance between two giant blue aliens with tails and having that film hit the general public in the way it did and, and, and make 
the money that it did. And for Everybody him to be able to sell to see that, Avatar. I, that's the thing. I'm yeah. slightly, I'm slightly mystified as to why it was a bigger hit than Titanic. Still, like I think it was absolutely an event, and it's something you had to see at the cinema. And he did use that template, but I just don't think it works as well. Well, and here's like, the question, because somebody pointed this out a few months. I forget where I read this, but somebody said, has any other film made so much money and broken so many box office records and yet failed to make a cultural impact? Because interesting, it hasn't it? really made... I see you is not part of the lexicon. <laughs> it's Actually, not... you're right. Nobody quotes nobody anything. Quotes no. Nobody uses the characters at for a, anything. At a push, I couldn't remember the lead character's name. And I, I actually think part of that isn't to do with the film. I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that there's so much culture now that there wasn't in Titanic that where uh, if something's going to become a catchphrase or become, well, people have to be able to repeat it constantly in a short amount of time. There's, you know, with the internet, with the, a million more channels. Mm. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily the fault of the film, but I do find it interesting that we're now at a stage where uh, something like Avatar can break records and still, and now there's not that sense that it ever happened. Yeah, it is interesting because Titanic is something where, you know, if ever there's a foggy window, I'm mashing my hand up against it. <laughs> you know, it is. It's one of those films. But, yeah, you're right. We don't take as much away mm. from these things. Mm. But yeah. I, I, I think his interest in a world, in having a created world that he can play with, like, I think, yeah, coming back to the whole thing of being influenced by Star Wars, is I think he really wanted a world to play in. Yeah. Mm. And he's now got that with the Avatar universe, but I'm not actually depressed by the fact that, uh, as some commentators are, that he said he's just going to make Avatar films from now on. And I think he wants to exist in this world and, and have the scope within this world to explore it more. And I, I, I'm a big fan of world building, and I think... This Could he build a more world. interesting world? That's I think it's thing. very interesting. See, that's the thing. I look at this world and I, I marvel at the craft and I, and some of it looks beautiful and it, to me, all looks like a video game at, at a completely great hyper-real level and I don't believe a second of it. And that's my main problem with Avatar. It's like, I, as great as, as the effects and everything are, I just can I'm always aware that I'm watching a construct. Mm. And I, I can't get emotionally involved. There's and- an article I'm, I'm going to link to on, on the website, which is a, a physicist who goes through the science of Avatar. And there was some stuff, even though I thought, I know Cameron's done his research, there was stuff I was expecting to see him refute, and he's, he was like, no, it's all pretty much right. Like, from mm. everything, from the biology to yeah. where the planets are in the background to, you know, the whole thing is on point. And it, again, it's that sense of detail, isn't it? It's yeah. that sense that we were talking about before. He's just, uh, he will, that's what I love about it. You, you see anything in his films that you think might be a, a logical flaw or whatever in terms of the science. It's like, mm. no, no, I, I'm pretty sure he's done his research. He, he and wouldn't, yeah, there's, not, there's probably not going to be a mistake. No. Yeah. yeah. Even even that famous thing of Neil deGrasse Tyson saying the stars in Titanic were wrong. And he was like, okay, and changed it for the, when it came oh, out wow. again. He changed the background, the star field, wow. to be accurate for where the Titanic was at that point. That's amazing. Yeah. You see, and that just makes me go, he cares. Yeah. yeah. Because another director would just go, shut up. Yeah. Mm. It's stars. But he, he gives a shit. He really does. And I, I personally think watching his films too, the thing, watching them all back to back, that's made me discover, he is the technically perfect action director. Mm. Like, I think like the way he la- does large-scale action is not only the best ever, I think it's perfect. There's no shaky cam, there's no artificial moving of the camera to get you into the mood. Like, he frames everything so carefully and beautifully, and yet the chaos within it is so remarkably... Mm. And even in Avatar, even when the action starts in Avatar, the same deal. That gift has never left him from the Terminator to, to, to Avatar. 
his 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 yeah his action is just flawless. I, I think he's a he's actually a genius, and I think not just for all the Howard Hughes without the crazy mm-hmm. stuff, uh, which is fantastic, but. Even just as a storyteller, he understands storytelling, character, dialogue, spectacle. We, he's got this reputation as being this aesthetically bombastic blockbuster director, but he never forgets character and story. Yeah. And I think that's why he's endured. And, and it's given me a whole new... Rewatching his films that I knew back to front, watching them all in quick succession, I'm like, oh, God, he's, he's even better than I thought he was. Yeah, yeah it's why Aliens is my favourite film, because mm. you can, like I said before, to the characters... It's those moments, and I think he, I would agree with you. I think he's a genius. And on that note, Tegan, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's nice to chat about the films I like. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month. That word, I don't think it means what you think it means. 